Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hey, how are you? Oh, no. Oh, you got I've the got uh, Golden that, Gate Bridge um, in the background. Yeah, you didn't tell yeah. us you're in San Francisco. Is that okay? Yeah. Get rid of that. Sorry, I'll just use. Uh, yesterday I was in Paris, to, today it's San Fran. <laughs> well, that's so. all we can do at the moment. <laughs> that's it. That's and dream about it. What have you been up to in this oh, yeah. apocalyptic lockdown? Well, not quite apocalyptic. That's a bit dramatic, but you know what I mean? Pretty much that. You know, I've been flat chat. It has been a real mix of supporting my um, clients that have got, you know, HR issues related to COVID or um, recruiting, just general, yeah, the general, you know, HR, you know, yeah, that are going on. Yeah. So flat chat. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of unanswered questions and, and concerns and confusion around, and we'll get into that, um, around, mm-hmm. you know, how things are going to return after all lockdown and getting people to work and, can you force them to get vaccinated? If you do, what happens? It's it's going to be a really really interesting time. But um, we saw you talk at the um, Cosmeticon. Was it was it last last year? Earlier this year? I don't even know what month this it is. Yeah, I think it's like March, April, something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think I've known you for quite a while in the industry. We've crossed paths a few times. I'm not sure whether Jake's had, had much to do with you before, but we found your chat really interesting. We sort of earmarked, you know, it'd be good to have you on at some point and talk about HR because I think when you think about HR generally, you, you sort of don't really understand like the breadth of what's involved and how it impacts our particular industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe just to get things kicked off and just to orientate our listeners with who you are and what we're going to talk about, could you give us just a bit of a, a brief background about yourself? Sure. Okay. Well... Um, Nova Castrian girl to start off with, and I'm I'm pretty proud to say I've still got some pretty strong roots, uh, you know, in the in the Newcastle area, which is great. And uh, I actually started my career in um, in education, so I was a primary school teacher for seven years, and I I think that really was a great grounding to become a HR person because sometimes you know I um, I think I lean back on that experience. But, um, I moved into um, adult education. Um, combining my background in hospitality and education, um, started working in human resource back when um, it was just starting to become a thing, you know, where people were having a human resource um, manager. So I'm showing my age. But, um, yeah, I was working in Newcastle with a a group, um, a hospitality group, and I took their business, well, as they were growing, from 250 staff to 4,000. And... um, then I moved to Sydney um, in 2000 where I um, took up a role with um, Sydney, um, the international airport, and I was working for Downtown Duty Free. And um, then that was really my foray into the industry. Um, I moved from, um, you know, working in um, human resource for more large organisations and, um, yeah, had the opportunity to move into HR in the industry, and that was the start. And how and why did you then sort of make yourself more specialised into medical and aesthetics and beauty? 
Uh, well, I think it was being in the right place at the right time to to a large degree. And when I first left uh, my, my role um, at um, Downtown Duty Free, I started working with um, Bella Media, you know, well-known um, in the in the industry. And um, Michelle had a quite a large team at the time. She was running lots of conferences and I came on board and, and did um, two years um, just they're working and really um, learned a lot about the industry um, under uh, Michelle's mentorship. And then I moved into actually a, a really front of um, front of house role with a, a cosmetic surgeon, and I was a HR man. Oh, sorry, really a practice manager slash HR for Dr. Ristogi, who really wanted right. me to change his um, yeah, really change up his business and. Um, it was actually through my relationship with Michelle and Anoop um, that I was finding that I was being called on so often with uh, doctors and uh, different practice managers would call me up and say, look, I've got this problem or this is happening or, hey, you know, you know about HR, What's what should I do about this? And I found that I was, you know, constantly um, giving people tips and tricks and how to manage people. And, uh, yeah, it was really uh, Anoop and Michelle and said, hey, you should really start your own business. And um, that's why really Boots and All was launched. And I think that was probably a pretty apt name for my business and, <laughs> and still is because I tend to do, you know, Boots and All, whether that is, you know, helping someone start a practice, help, you know, um, staff it um, initially, um, helping them through um, midlife crisis in their practices, that sort of thing. Um it's basically, yeah, I do jump in boots and all. So, yeah, that was born in around about 2008 and uh, I've been been at it ever since. Now, um, everyone's heard the term HR and everyone knows, well, I'm assuming most people know that it means human resources, but what what does it actually mean? Like what, what, what does that encompass? Like what sort of things are you doing to help companies? How do you help staff? Just give us a bit of un- understanding of what that actually means in, in a practical sense. Okay. And I, I think what's a really good term at the moment, um, I'm starting to rebrand my role as people and culture as well, because I think that really um, sums it up a lot better than, than human resource. And sometimes people forget the, the human aspect of, of um, the, the role. But if you look at what human resource does, it looks at the humans as they really relate to your business in the, re- they are the resource. And I, will always see myself like a broken record, I'm, I'm afraid. I say, you know, our humans or our employees are the most important aspect of, of our business, um, yet they can be the most um, costly and, um, and also the most devastating um, part of our business if we don't get it right. So looking at our humans as a resource and treating them, looking at ways that we treat them, we recruit, we treat them well, we retain them, we train them, and then, you know, helping with um, offboarding. So, you know, if it's time for someone to to move on, sometimes they they realise it, sometimes they don't. So, so it's sort of working in and um, I suppose really the full journey of the employee through the business um, and whatever that entails. So, yeah. So, so who are your particular clients that you're looking after? What sort of services and industries at the moment? Well, I'm predominantly working in the 
um, medical health and beauty industry. So a lot of, most of my clients are um, cosmetic and plastic surgeons, um, sort of more the, the high-end um, beauty salon. So I work for a, a large um, day spa in Karamara. So Gillian Adams has um, 30 staff mm-hmm. um, across you know, um, different aspects of the, the business. Um, and then I have a few... Um, clients that are, that sit outside of that in in IT um, real estate. There's a there's a few, but it's predominantly um, my focus is on medical health and beauty, which you know makes me focus on probably three main awards. You know, with the um, um, health professionals and support services, um, hair and beauty industry, and the nurses award. And you know, generally the staff come under that. So. I become a bit of an expert on those areas, so yeah. they all fit with generally within that little niche market. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What is it that you enjoy most about the role? Because you know, dealing with people can be the worst and and best experiences of your life, or the parts of your job that you either hate or or love the most. What is it that draws you to it, and what do you find that sort of keeps you coming back and, and keeps you so motivated and enthusiastic about what you do? Oh well, well, I must say, I love what I do. I that is one thing that I can really say. I love my job and uh, my goal is to really facilitate that same experience for people when I place them in roles. So I think that's probably what I enjoy most when I get it right, you know, when you get the right person in the right job at the right time and you think, wow, that that's just perfect. That, that person is happy. They get out of bed every day and they enjoy going to work and the business has a great person and that helps them, um, you know, with their, their day-to-day running of their business and it fits with the brand. It all it all goes well. That's what I like best of all, yeah, getting it right. Do you ever recruit specifically for clinics who are looking for injectors? I mean, that's what I do and David owns, you know, some of those clinics. Have you ever engaged in that particular service or not? Absolutely. Uh, they're, again, boots and all. Um, I'm... I'm um, Contacted by um, various um, businesses throughout um, throughout Australia, really, um, where I'm putting um, nurse injectors into practices or doctors with doctors. So it's right from you know top down. So sometimes um, businesses will will want a doctor to join their team, um, and pro- probably over the last you know three to five years, there's been a really um, big change in that where people want to bring on nurse injectors. Yeah, yeah and I, I really enjoy that um, aspect of the role. I'm doing a little bit of that now with a few of my clients. Mm. Yeah, I'd be interested to ask both you and David. Well, it's not really a question, more of a statement. So I've noticed having, I used to work with David, that's about a year ago now, and I've seen many injectors come and go. And he always used to speak about the ideal injector. He used to call them the unicorns because they were good at their job, but they were also nice people and they were good at selling. And they were just like this unique person that he found very difficult to find. What's your experience when, uh, when you've been sort of looking for that magic injector? Oh, I think unicorn is the right word to use. <laughs> it, it, it's <laughs> so finding the right person for the right job. And, and that's really, I think, where that, you know, HR, um, at looking at the resource and looking at the human and saying, well, you know, how does this person fit with this role? And I think that's really key to getting it right, like really drilling down. What, is, what does a person really want to do? What What is their um, their goal and their motivation and it's it's everything from how many days they want to work, what what they think um, the working relationship or the model should look like. And I feel 
oh, that is, this is different for nearly every person. And um, a lot of my um, clinic owners or doctors will say, you know, okay, so what's, what's the going rate for an injector? I said, well, you know, it's, it's going to be different for every single person you talk to. Um, they'll have a different idea of what that should look like and, um, and how that will work. And, you know, someone might want to work two days a week. Um, some people want five days. It's finding out what they want and making sure that that fits with what you have to offer for the long term and you, you get that sort of fit and the match in your business. Yeah. Much, was that have I answered that question? Or no, I... no, for sure. Yeah. And David, so tell us about your experience of employing injectors because that's our core. Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking generally because obviously there's going to be outliers and, and sort of people that don't fit into this category. But speaking very generally, I guess my experiences were that you'd find um, a lot of nurses that were coming into the industry that had sort of pivoted from therapeutic nursing or working in a hospital who'd sort of seen an opportunity to move into aesthetics because it was, you know, a good career change. They could see there was great money involved, but they weren't passionate about the industry. It was more a pivot for a pivot's sake to do something different or being attracted to a different lifestyle rather than being passionate about aesthetics. Mm. And that was always difficult because it was kind of hard to get people to, you know, present themselves the right way. They, pro- you know, you know, not saying everyone that does injectables has to have treatments, but I think that it sort of goes hand in hand that if you're believing in it and you think that these things are beneficial and you should integrate them into your life, then you probably should represent what it is that you're doing every day and and, and for some and to a large extent selling. So that was one end of the spectrum. And the other was people that were coming into the industry purely for the money, purely to be, you know, the next famous Instagram injector. They weren't really concerned about patient outcomes. It was more about them than the patient. Mm-hmm. So I sort of had these two extreme ends of the spectrum where you had people that were in the industry, but not in the, but not really for the right motivations and reasons. And, and I think you always, well, for me, I always sort of ran into issues with those people because you can never really truly align um, objectives and what it was you were trying to achieve. So that unicorn injector was someone who was, who was sort of both, who really cared about patients. Um, you know, they were, um, I guess, you know, well-trained, understood like bedside manner, how to communicate with patients, you know, medically responsible, but also had that entrepreneurial X factor about them as well. And that's what I mean by the unicorn is someone that had all of those characteristics and attributes combined. But when you find people who are outside of that, they can be quite difficult to work with. That was just my experience. Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. So what, what sort of people are coming onto your books, Lizzie? Where are they from? Because like David said, there tends to be people who may be a bit burnt out of the public health system. Mm-hmm. And then there's these newbies who have never done a day of public health in their life. It's very mm-hmm. hard to find that middle ground person who's maybe got a bit more of a balance. Where, where are your injectors from? That is. Well, very similar to what David is saying there, they are coming from um, the, a nursing background and wanting to get out of that you know, routine that they're in with that. Also, um, people coming in specifically to the industry, that's been a big trend, um, I think, for probably every beauty therapist I talk to uh, or dermal therapist. Um, they're either studying nursing or they're planning to study nursing. So you're getting a... Um, really um, a new breed of um, nurse injectors that are coming in through like the grandfathering system through the industry. So they might have worked, you know, three to five years um, as a beauty or dermal therapist. Um, They're now engaged in nursing and then they want to link themselves with a practice 
um, so that, um, you know, eventually when they finish nursing, they'll, they'll really hit the ground running with, with some of those skills. So probably, um, you know, I might call those, you know, sleepers. You know, they're, they're people in training and they're really um, ingrained in the, the culture and the, um, the practice that they're in and um, they know how things work and they move up. So I would say across my um, broad range of clients, there's quite a number of people who are doing that at the moment and uh, it's one of the first questions that I ask if I'm placing a dermal therapist. It's like, well, you know, are you studying nursing or are you planning to study nursing? And eight out of ten say yeah, yeah, yeah yes. Wow, eight out of ten, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. Um, before we move on to, I guess, more of the general HR questions, which we really want to get to, but just, you know, the COVID question that sort of seems to occupy a certain percentage of every podcast that we have now, especially, you know, it's, it's impacting us. In, I mean, I know international listeners have sort of, a lot of them are moving back to some kind of normality, but we're still a little bit behind and we've got our own issues going on here. So it is impacting us significantly. I know that from last lockdown, it was really hard to get people to want to come back to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people, you know, 21 days to form a habit, they say, you know, so we've had nearly three months of, depending on, well, in our industry, three months for the most part being, you know, locked down away from your job, you're not in the routine and sort of getting people to come back, especially when there's things like, you know, you can sit at home and get money from the government. Um, was it $700 a week or something roughly um, mm-hmm. with uh, the sort of, you know, the the, in, the, the, um, the programs that they've got in place there to, to support people during this process. So how do you think, coming back this time is going to impact businesses. So just interested to get your, your general views and then maybe let's move on to, you know, what those challenges are going to look like and how um, as business owners, um, you know, you don't have to own like a big business. You could just be a, a small injector with like a front of house person and maybe one other injector. You could be, um, mm. you know, someone that has a large practice or even just from um, the employees or, the, or the, the, their perspective, you know, getting back into that routine and, and finding that motivation again. So it's, it's a long question, but it's there's quite a lot to it and it is really going to um, impact a lot of businesses, I think, moving forward. Would you agree, Jake? Yeah. Um, I, I luckily, and, and we sort of joke about this, I'm l- luckily I don't own my own business. So I'm a contractor. I can just turn up back to my clinic. Thank God it's still existing. <laughs> uh, and thanks Charles for, <laughs> for, for keeping the clinic alive. But yeah, I don't have those pressures. And you know, when I reflect on what you have to manage, you've got four clinics in two different states. And I think you've said at one point you've got about 80 employees. It's mm-hmm. just, I don't know. I, I think I'd have a meltdown. <laughs> yeah. So um, this podcast is particularly interesting for me because I can sort of see if I ever wanted a business, these are the pressures and, and challenges that, you know, I or other people might have to face. But uh, yeah, sorry, I've sort of stole your right, time. Do, do you want me to, we've, we've, we've rambled on a little bit. Do you want me to go over it again or you got it? <laughs> it's, oh, it's pretty good. No, I, I think I've, I've got you. And I, uh, I think there is, that's why it's a very exciting time to be in HR because people are reaching out. People that probably would not have... Um, otherwise reached out to me they're they're seeing that you know they they need help um it's really interesting there's there's a different um sort of movement this time with this with the second lockdown here i can speak about new south wales in particular yeah uh, but also I, I i have clients in um victoria that's just been crazy and queensland it, it's very different state to state um and people's attitudes um you know are really reflected um, by the the number of lockdowns and and how it's impact, impacting them and you know what restrictions they have, but I think um, probably key to it is um, the the second lockdown here in New South Wales 
Um, people had a, a calmer attitude towards it, I found in general, because they, they'd been through it before. It wasn't um, so unusual. You know, it, it wasn't the first time it happened. And I, and I also think um, key to this for managing a business was the way that we've managed the, the COVID um, payments to employees this time, going through my gov and, and having that uh, money put straight into people's account and, and giving them some, um, some form of control over their, their income, I think it's been a really positive um, impact. I think the JobKeeper being funnelled through the employers last time, you know, sometimes people felt like, oh, are they really passing it on to me? Are they really getting a lot of money and they're not giving it to me? There was some of that. Yeah, which was interesting. Um, and I think people weren't quite sure, you know, business owners um, weren't sure how to how to manage it if they didn't have, you know, someone in control in, in their bookkeeping. But this time I think it's going to be harder to get people back. Um, that's what I'm I'm finding that there's been an, a seismic shift in people's thinking. And uh, if I look back at, um, say, my um, projects for my clients over the last um 10 weeks, so many people are asking to um, be, um, say, reduce their um, their time. They're, they want to go part-time. They don't want to be full-time anymore. It's, I want to work three days. I want to work four days. So we, and that's increased um, the um, requirement to recruit because we, we, need, we still need people five days a week. Um, and I, I just think really, um, yeah, the, the whole idea that the change in mindset, people are really um, more switched on to looking after their own mental health. That's become like the catch cry. And if I, oh, I don't think I've had an interview recently where the candidate hasn't brought up work-life balance. Mm. So people are really focused on that. So. Yeah. In um, last week's podcast, we had Maria Cocciolone from InSkin Cosmetics. And obviously, she, you know, she's selling products to clinics and she didn't have a figure, but sh she was worried that, you know, a percentage and quite a significant percentage may have, you know, basically had to close their business or many of her, or not many, but lots of people have decided that actually this career is not stable enough for me because of these in and out lockdowns. And, you know, some of them have gone completely into different careers like mining and, you know, driving trucks or whatever. So what, what's your perspective on what people are saying to you? And have you noticed um, a reduction in applications for, you know, potential jobs? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the time to fill a position at the moment, um, it's like the, the stats is around about 80 days to, to actually recruit. And that's doubled wow. from, from, well, around in 2018 would it was on average somewhere between 55 to 65 days to, to actually um, place a person. Now when I place an ad on Seek or um, Indeed and the various job boards, I'm getting sometimes three and four applications, um, whereas, you know, I'd normally get 65 or even 100. Wow, um, that's a huge drop. It is it is monumental. So there's definitely a decrease and, and that is Absolutely related to people leaving this industry because they want job security. But you don't um, think it's time related? People are just waiting for that opening date, and then then they'll put their energy into it. Look, there's a little bit of that, um, and I noticed that um, probably two weeks ago when um, Gladys first started actually putting dates on the roadmap out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 
And automatically that weekend, um, I started, you know, getting, you know, um, seek applications and, you know, CVs coming through and and people sending me, you know, and, and touching base or replying to messages that I'd sent them three or four weeks earlier. Yeah. So they started to think, oh, well, okay, well, this this 750 that I'm getting um, is going to stop um, when uh, when Gladys opens New South Wales. Uh, so maybe I should start looking now. But now in general, I, I would agree with you that there's, um, and and with Maria, there's an exodus from this industry to a certain degree. There's certain, certainly a number of the smaller operations that mm. haven't been able to weather the um, the close down and w- will never reopen. Um, and people just saying, well, you know, I, I want a more stable um, yeah. position. Yeah. And going to study as well. Yeah. 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 It's, it's also um, an industry or a job or a career that, it's quite um, emotionally draining, I would imagine. And maybe Jake can speak to this from, from his perspective. But, you know, we've been through what pretty traumatic sort of 12 months as, as a population, really. I mean, it's been unprecedented waters for us people experiencing, you know, these sorts of challenges, which for many might be the first sort of, you know, significant challenge in their life of, of this sort of scale. Um, and this role requires a lot of giving of yourself, your time, your energy, listening to people's complaints, their insecurities. And it's like, well, what about me? You know, I don't know whether I've got that in me at the moment. Maybe I need to, you know, find something else. I'm feeling a bit emotionally drained. I need to, you know, think about whether this is what's making me happy. So maybe there is a readjustment process happening. People have had a time to get off the hamster wheel and reassess their life and, and work out what's important to them and what makes them happy. So it's a tough one because we all want to look good, right? But if there's no one out there to make us look good, we sort of, you know, it, inevitably, you know, probably prices will, will may go up if you have this. It all comes down to basic economics, supply and demand. If we don't have this supply to meet the demand, then there probably will be a shift in, you know, the availability the price people are paying for these things. And it's going to be really interesting to sit back and watch. I know from my business, I'm sort of thinking, I don't know what that's going to look like because we'll get to this soon as well as, you know, the whole vaccinated thing and, you know, not being able to, um, you know, tell people whether they should or whether they shouldn't, which, which is reasonable. But then clients having concerns around, well, am I going into a premises where people who are working there may not be vaccinated and, you know, businesses are going to be put in a really tough position because, they're going to have issues with having enough people in the business to actually turn it over and, and make it sustainable. And then you're going to have conflict with clients who are going to be wondering about, you know, and, and rightly so, who's providing their services and are they safe? So it's going to be real interesting um, to sort of see how this un- unfolds. Did you have any thoughts on that, Jake? Oh, God, it's a long question. Um, <laughs> it was more of a well, statement, yeah. really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess, firstly, yeah, reflecting back to the last lockdown, even myself, I was like, you know, I've, I've had all this time at home and the world got scary and blah, blah, blah. And I decided myself I wanted a better work-life balance, but I quickly forgot that once I got back into <laughs> yeah. the swing of things. And and like uh, Lizzie said, I feel like this, this lockdown has felt different. Uh, weirdly, it's felt more frustrating because... I think the first lockdown, everyone was much more, well, in my experience, I think people were more scared because we didn't really know what this was all about. Whereas the second lockdown has felt like, oh God, not again. And and there was more frustration than fear, but I guess everyone's different. Maybe maybe people were scared, I don't know. But personally, I was just more frustrated. Um, but you're right, you know, there's there's a lot of frustration both from, you know, injectors and, and clinics, but also our patients. They're desperate to come back 
we're desperate to go. And yet, you know, I've had mountains and mountains of people texting me, emailing me, calling me saying, when are you opening? When are you opening? We have this, it's impossible to sort of tell people what to do. And then we've had this weird dynamic where some of the clinics have decided to open up through the lockdown and they've filtered off some of those people. Some of our clients have gone there because they're so desperate to get their treatments done. So we're in this weird kind of limbo of people desperate to see us, but also not necessarily being loyal enough to wait and people getting frustrated. So it'd be interesting when we do actually open to see what actually happens. I mean, looking at my books and my diary, it's mental. Um, and I've decided I'm just going to work as crazy as I can for a finite period of time and then try and get back some normal work-life balance. It's impossible to cater to everyone immediately, of course, but I think that I have to sort of put my foot on the pedal for a couple of weeks to, you know, to get through the backlog and then try and settle into something a bit more normal. Um, you can't carry on that pace forever. It's impossible. Then there'll be issues of burnout and, and other problems. Um, so I think we'll do another podcast maybe on burnout and all that <laughs> kind of stuff because it's a real thing. It, it really is. And I probably shouldn't say this, but I, I will. <laughs> Remember when this lockdown was first announced, I said to one or two very close friends, I was like, I can actually do with two weeks off. I'm feeling pretty tired. And I didn't realize it would last for you know, three, four months. And, and I regret saying it now, but it is an issue. I think somehow we need to get our work-life balance better. I don't know how we do that, but um, everyone's personal situation is different, I guess. I- I'm curious to know what Lizzie thinks about the whole vaccination with <laughs> employees and clients. That That's uh, going to be Oh, a yeah. real doozy. And I know that you, your your um, company specifically works on policies and regulations. So tell us about your thoughts. Oh, wow. That is, that's our modern day minefield in, in the workplace. <laughs> and um, it's probably you know, up there with probably 90% of the work I'm doing with my clients, you know, managing calls either, you know, what to do with um, a situation where someone's been a close contact or a casual contact and, you know, how we manage their leave and how we um, communicate that to the rest of the team. So it, it's right throughout the the spectrum of, you know, COVID is impacting every single aspect of the day-to-day life of the practice, all the practices that are, are still open. And the ones that aren't, they're, they're preparing for um, reopening and they want their staff to be vaccinated so that they can put on their website or that you know promote to their um, clients and patients you know everyone in our workplace is fully vaxxed Mm. Um, yet you have that old um, um, privacy act 1988 which is older than most of the people we're employing Um, and um, you know that that act you know stops you from actually being able to ask people about their vaccination status so you know, people are aware of that and they they know that, um, you know, they're, they're treading on um, new new ground because, you know, we're waiting on um, our politicians to come out and actually, you know, mandate um, vaccination and we the employers are really between um, a rock and a hard place to some degree. Um, where I would say if I was to probably put a number on it, 75 to 80%. Um, of the employees that, that I'm dealing with on a day-to-day basis and, and within clinics that I'm working with personally, and probably even higher, probably 90%, um, are, are quite willing, you know, to be vaccinated. Um, we, we have got a lot of um, 
a lot of communication around that for the people who don't. So the the 10% or so that, you know, are either quite anti-vax um, or are sitting on the fence. Um, it's interesting, a lot of the um, younger staff um, in the practices that I'm working, young, of course, our, our industry attracts, um, you know, young um, females um, in, across the, the board. And it's been interesting how many people have um, voiced their concern that they're, they're not really wanting to get into a vaccination um, program because they fear that it might impact their fertility down the track. I'm, I'm, yeah, that, that's been a really big issue. Um, yeah. And what I try to do is facilitate information that's coming from reputable sources, open up the lines of communication with the doctors or the principal um, of the practice and really work through what their objections are. But I'm finding, yeah, most of the time you, you have people that are genuinely happy to be involved in the whole process and they see the need to engage in the vaccination program so that, you know, we can open up our country and, uh, you know, we can do all, we can have the freedoms that we've uh, been denied for really um, since um, this all started back in, in March 2020. Yeah, so it's a, it, it is a minefield and I don't think there's anything black and white. That, that was probably, that would be my, my summary of that. It's every case yeah. is different. I'm curious. I don't know if there is an answer. Maybe I ask David because you're you're an employer. What what is the legal ramifications if you know one of your therapists says I don't want to be vaccinated and um, you know I, I'm just not coming to work? Like, yeah. To be honest with you, I'm st I'm still working my way through that. I don't know if there's a definitive answer on on what you can. And I know you can't force people to. I've, I've and maybe Lizzie can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm just sort of um, speaking on what I've heard. I haven't actually read this anywhere, but um, you know, if your staff member gets vaccinated and they get sick, then there might be some potential um, blowback on you or some sort of you know you might be in a position where they could take action against you for sort of, you know, forcing them or, you know, encouraging them to, to get the vaccine. I don't know whether that's true. I've heard that. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. I think it's something we're going to have to figure out as we go, but you know, it's, I'm, I'm sort of just as in inquisitive as to what Lizzie thinks on this because, you know, and part of the reason for having you on here was also for selfish reasons to get some, <laughs> get some free advice. Oh no, just <laughs> is well, the, how, how do we navigate that? I mean, what you, what can you, ask your your staff to do you know are we um in a position where we can encourage them to do so where is that line mm -hmm. um what other potential fallouts and, and how do we manage that because i know for my business we require you know volume of patients to come through the door to be to be profitable so if you've got situations where you've got one or two staff that aren't vaccinated or they get sick and then they've got a quarantine you know how do you sustain a business like that it's going to be really really tough you know and i wouldn't want to do the politician's job i think it's the most difficult job in the world but it, it does feel like there's been some things that haven't really been thought about properly or thought th thought through um just in to relation preface that I, you know when i worked in hospital i had to have hepatitis b uh, shots and i had to prove i didn't have hiv or if i did i had to declare it so th this isn't completely unprecedented there are similar things in in, in employment it's yeah. just a new uh, you know disease a new vaccine i guess but yeah tell us your thoughts lizzie mm, i think that's key to it um doc the um 
people are saying because it's so new they're saying well we don't know what's in it you know and, and you know sometimes I say well you know wow you have Botox and you you have lots of other fillers and you've had so many other other yeah. things you know so um but you know that's um not really a, a valid um argument to it it says when it comes down to it it the the line is completely blurred that it that is really the the bottom line is a very blurry line um all we can really do at the moment um, as it stands with um, our ability to um, ask our employees to be vaccinated is to um, let them know that that's our preference for our business and why that's a preference and and actually talk to them about um, this, you know this is how we're moving forward with our business our goal is to have a fully vaccinated workplace this is to protect you so giving people reasons and I, I think, this what is what comes down to what I do every day. It's it's all about communication, you know, and listening to what people are saying, um, seeing whether there's validity, and there's always validity for them, you know, because for them it, it's it's true. So you're really addressing what the issues are for the individual, and you know, sometimes they come up with things that you think, wow, I you know haven't heard that one before. Uh, so yeah, it is it is crazy that. You know, you, you need other vaccinations. And, and you know, back in the day, like, you know, way, way back, people had, you know, smallpox vaccinations before they could travel. Uh, now it's just so new and there isn't any legislation around it. And I think that's why we're floundering. Mm. And we're also um, hit with the whole anti-vax mm. Um, program where you know there's a strong movement with people giving information saying why you know why you shouldn't be vaccinated and mm. I think I love like someone who had explained to me one time saying you know if we didn't have Facebook um, probably the whole country you know the, the whole world would be vaccinated <laughs> you know it's it's a, and I'm not blaming social media for you know for this but you know there, there's there's certainly that underlying um, sort of feeling that there's a lot of miss um, information out there around um, being vaccinated. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, we were just talking before we were there, weren't yeah. we? Well, yeah, no, Jake and I go back and forth on this all the time because I, I, I'm sort of you know more on the fence. I don't really know what to believe, to be honest with you, that because I see it's not just as simple of oh we simple as oh we've got an issue, people need to be vaccinated, and it's just straightforward. There's been a lot of sort of confounding factors and and sort of you know, unusualness about how this whole thing has un, uh, unfolded. Um, and I think that it's it's sort of those other factors that are making people sort of pause and go, oh, hold on a second, I'm not too sure about this. And so I don't think it's just as simple of we simple as we have an issue, here's a vaccine. There's just been all these other things going on in the background. I mean, where did it come from? You know, the origins of it. Then you've got, you know, people that, you know, speak up about other alternative, you know, potential uh, remedies. And, you know, I'm not a doctor here to talk about what should and shouldn't be done or any studies or like anything like that. So just to make that clear, but there's sort of like anyone that doesn't sort of toe the line with what is considered, you know, the narrative, they just basically deplatformed, ridiculed, you know, you're, you're scared to sort of ask questions and sort of um, question things. And I think it's almost like that silencing and that um, intolerance of people who want to have, um, you know, open discussions and, and have proper conversations and debates. 
it's that unwillingness to engage in those sort of conversations that sort of make people go, well, hold on a second, why? You know, why can't we talk about this? Why can't we have a spirited debate and talk about the merits of both sides and ask the difficult questions and ask ask for explanations? And I think that's probably what is is driving a lot of people, especially younger people's uncertainty is just this over information. Everything you read tells you something different. You don't know how to... Um, you know, I guess, um, qualify what it is that you're reading, um, where it's coming from, what's motivating it. So there's just a lot of weird stuff going on. And I think that's what is driving a lot of this uncertainty and confusion from my perspective. Uh, I agree that social media has been the problem. (laughs) It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I I can't think of another situation. I'm sure there must be many where so many lay people have tried to become experts in medicine. But I can't think, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I'm, I mean that seriously, because when I read a paper, it's difficult. I, I need to weigh up so many things. What, what are the sources? What's the sample size? You know, what are the biases? And it's really hard to critique a paper. And I try and do that when I'm reading aesthetic journals, forget COVID and vaccinations. So to ask someone who's not medically trained or a scientist to do that, it's basically impossible. You're just going on your gut instinct that that sounds good or bad or I like it or I don't like it. And then you see two confounding papers or experts and you think, well, they can't both be right. And and so there's this polarization just just by human nature. You've got to go one way or the other, don't you? Mm. So yeah, it's uh it's a weird one. I, I'm I'm really curious to see what our patients think of all of this. Forget employees. Um communication is going to be the key right through that whole process. Communicating with our um with our employees and addressing their individual concerns. I mean, one, some of the things I've been doing is really trying to get the business principals to just, yeah, hold conversations with their employees about, you know, where they sit, why they're, why they're doing what they're doing, um, you know, ha- what the future looks like and then how that's going to impact the patients. But, see, that's that's another, another thing and a, actually a, a really great um, uh, comment that one of my employees made the other day saying, well, hang on a minute, we, we can all be vaccinated um, and, you know, double vaxxed, but yet, you know, a patient might come in and, you know, so are we going to say, well, we're only going to treat, you know, double vaxxed patients as well, you know, they, and, you know, we've got that whole process and you sort of stop in your tracks and you go, okay, we really need to make sure that we're rolling out this whole process and the thought process for for everyone involved yeah so it's well i think um i could be wrong but i think gladys and if you're wondering we keep on referencing gladys she's the premier of our state um she's basically said that you know the double vaxxed people rightly or wrongly i'm I'm not taking sides here they'll only be you know they'll be only people to to engage to go to restaurants and pubs and bars and, and public spaces so presumably that also means hairdressers and clinics I'm assuming. I don't want to put words in in her mouth and maybe get the wrong interpretation, but that would be my assumption. Mm. Um, How how can you allow someone to not buy a coffee unless they're double vaxxed, but go and have, you know, Botox? It doesn't. That doesn't make sense to me. If that is the blanket rule, it Mm. has to be throughout. Otherwise, what's the point of the rule? Exactly. I don't think we're actually really going to see um, what that looks like until, you know, we, we get further down that roadmap. And yeah. uh, I, 
I think you you said it so um, perfectly um, before, David. Uh, you know, they've, they've, it's a very difficult um, position that our politicians are in, and they're really making it up as they go along, yeah. you know, because they need to. It's it's uncharted waters. So, we, yeah, I think we'll we'll be guided on that a little bit further down the track. Makes it hard to create the policy that we need at the moment to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and and also the danger of of being in a situation where um, yeah people think that well I could possibly be um, you know um, somehow penalised for um, causing a person injury or illness by strongly suggesting they get a vaccination if they have a negative reaction um, you know what's my liability for that you know it's all around that future liability so yeah well it puts people in a difficult position because at the mm-hmm. end of the day. You know, no one wants to, you know, go out and, and cause harm to their patients. But at the same time, people have got businesses and families to feed and, and people to provide for. So, you know, it's it's a tough situation, you know, because people will do things that they need to do to look after their family. So it's going to be very interesting to sort of see how this unfolds. But yes, well, maybe maybe let's move on to some more um, general <laughs> HR questions. I feel like we could sit here and talk about COVID forever. It just seems to dominate every conversation that we have, but it's pertinent. It's important that we talk about it. And, you know, I really appreciate your input and um, position on things. It's sort of every every conversation that we have, I feel like a little bit smarter and have a few more insights into, into sort of how to deal with it and how it's all going to unfold. But talking about um, recruitment in general, where are people using what platforms are people using to recruit what and what platforms are people using to look for jobs i mean we mentioned seek but what are the other what are the other platforms people are using these days well certainly there's been um a few new players come onto the the whole online job board um over the last few years so indeed has been used quite um, um indeed indeed yeah I've heard of that. okay yeah that's um was originally um, really only um, used well a lot um, by our fabulous um, English and Irish um, candidates, and that's that's how I got onto it because they were um, generally when I placed an ad, it was mainly um, English and Irish. So it developed there, really getting a strong um, foothold in Australia, and it's um, it's it's actually quite a reasonable um, platform to advertise on as well. So indeed, it's got. Um, yeah, more of a, um, a following, and and certainly um, LinkedIn. I mean, we've got um, so many people now um, engaging, updating their um, details on LinkedIn, and that's a really great way of connecting with people. Certainly, of a of a higher level. So, um, the nurse injectors and um, practice managers and people of a higher um, level within the um, business world seem to be using LinkedIn more as a way of seeing what jobs are out there and, um, you know, who's recruiting. And we use it a lot for background checks. Um, word of mouth is still out there. There's still quite a percentage of jobs that never hit the, um, you know, the job boards. Um, look, Facebook as well, you know, again, is, is a great way um, belonging to um, Facebook groups and so within the different um, facets of, of our industry, so you have, um, so for example, a um, practice manager's Facebook group, this is a nurse's Facebook group, um, there's beauty therapists, um, jobs for beauty therapists group. Um, so there's a lot of specific um, Facebook groups that, that you particularly go to as a job board now. 
And uh, that that can be, you know, quite hit and miss, I, I find. That's been my experience. But I also find, um, you know, I suppose the, also to the increasing people using um, agencies, so, you know, using recruitment agencies and you know, there's I think when I first came on the scene um well nearly 20 years ago now I was probably one of the only people doing this uh, you know what I do and and now there's there's quite a few people and what people I, I love to call colleagues so yeah looking for people um in in our industry has changed a lot interesting you mentioned LinkedIn I find <laughs> I guess I'm not looking for a job, so, so so I'm using it for a completely different purpose. It's more networking, but I just find it so spammy. Yeah. Like I get so many, you know, a friend requests or whatever it's called on LinkedIn for basically financial advisors, real estate people. They're fishing for just, you know, potential clients for themselves. And I just get bored of it. I just it's a it's it's a weird world. It, it's it's definitely not social media for me. It's it's more of a a networking and picking up client sort of um, channel. What, what's your experience with that, David? Oh, same. Every other day, I'll get some random message from someone saying, "Hey, David, good to connect with you. Would you like to buy my shit?" You know, like you just you get you get all these sort of unsolicited um, sort of requests from people. Um, so I don't really know what to make of LinkedIn. Maybe I'm just I'm, maybe I just haven't had enough experience with it, but definitely have noticed that you do get quite a few random people just sort of wanting to sell your stuff or, or what have you. So maybe I'm just using it incorrectly. What do you think, Lizzie? Well, I, I think it's a, an emerging um, job board. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, originally I think that was probably one of the ideas that was connecting um, business people with business people and then people, um, other um, opportunists saw it as a way of, uh, you know, connecting with people to sell their wares. Um, but now if you, if you look at, according to um, LinkedIn, they've got 10 million registered users in Australia and out of those, according to, to them, um, over half log in at least once a month. Yeah. Uh, so... I think it's probably targeting. If if I place, um, I, when I'm looking back, at, I keep a record of you know where my placements come from. Yeah, I've probably successfully placed or you know actually sourced um, candidates from LinkedIn. Probably only about twenty percent, but still, it's you know it, it's emerging as a way of finding good people at that definitely at that higher level. But yeah. I, I think that um, you're right, Jake. If um, if you're using it as a, um, a a tool for finding a new job or for recruiting, you actually have a different um, experience with it, you know, yeah. rather than just you have a spam. Yeah. The other good one is see who's been looking at your profile. Pay us a hundred dollars a month, and we'll show you. Like it's very expensive, isn't it? <laughs> Here's a sneak peek. Here's three people that have been. You want to know who the rest are? Give us your cash. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask, Dizzy? Is um when people come to you or or, or you sort of gather their data a bit. Well, we call it a CV in the UK, but do people still use resumes here? Is that, or is it a bit old hat? I don't know. Ah, oh, good question. Absolutely, yeah. You, um, it's it's still very much part of the um, the, the recruitment process, um, and you tell you really find out a lot about a person from their CV. You know, just looking and going in. That's one of my uh, aspects of the recruitment process. Um, I will will click in and and have a look at how it's formatted and and you know check for spelling mistakes. And it really does tell you a lot about the candidate. You know, 
they can they can often tell you in a cover letter, well, you know, if if they write one, but you know, they'll say, Oh, I'm so, you know, organized and I have attention to detail and I'm very thorough. Um, yet they've they've put uh, you know, they've got spelling mistakes or they've they've used the, you know, instead of using a tab, they've sort of used the space bar to move things along and you then they will tell you that they're really highly skilled in administration skills. And, you know, you can just one look at their CV and you can say, well, yeah, not really. You know, I wouldn't like you to be, uh, you know, designing my my letters that are being, you know, being sent out to uh, my yeah. patients. Uh, and it will give you a, a good um, background. Um, you really need to see, you know, how long a person has stayed in a role, um, you know, where they've worked, how they've moved around. It gives you a, a good snapshot. And then you use that really to catapult into other research about the person going into LinkedIn Mm. and um, more and more people are um, developing a LinkedIn profile um, so that employers or or recruiters will look at that rather than, say, their Facebook or their Insta. Um, So so they actually have a... That's such a good point. Do you as the recruiter or, you know, the the sort of the go-between between the employer, do you do a bit of homework on their social media? Absolutely. And what, oh. what sort of salacious things do you find? Oh, <laughs> the whole episode wow. in itself. <laughs> <laughs> that is sometimes the funniest part of, you know, my role where, you know, you'll, um, yeah, just see, you know, a person and every, you know, and again, we, we don't judge, but, um, you know, they'll every single photo there, you know, with a, with a group of people have got a glass of wine in their hand and they, or they look like they're partying and, you know, the tongue is out and, you know, just, like, <laughs> oh, okay, okay. And that's fine. You can, you can do that in your um, recreation time or, or on, the, on the other side, you know, you see that they've got a, you know, a family and, um, you know, there's, there's some, um, some structure or, you know, that they've travelled. So you get a little bit of an idea. Mm. It's really good. It's like a, a sneak peek into the person's background that, you know, 10 years ago we didn't have. I mean, you know, Facebook, well, it's really only been around since 2008, isn't it? Yeah. Really, from, you know, people, you know, coming in, say, what, 2004 in Australia. But that's that's sort of where it's a great way to do it. With Instagram it's harder because people have a different handle and so um, there's, there's different ways of going, you know, getting in and um, yeah. and finding out about people. But definitely you need to do your homework. And uh, and it's also a good way of catching people out sometimes. So one of my fave stories, I was having a, an interview I'd organised um, with a client and um, this young lady called me and said, oh, I'm really sorry, I can't. No, she texts, that's right, I didn't call my granddad is very ill and I need to go and see him in hospital. I said, oh, you know, I hope, I hope granddad's okay. We can reschedule the interview, no problem. And then I just happened to jump on Facebook and she was texting, um, well, so, you know, um, posting that um, she'd had a big night the night before. She was hungover. She woke up in some guy's house. She didn't know where she was. Uh-huh. It was just hysterical. So, you know, I think we dodged a bullet. So there you go. But it's weird, isn't it? It's weird how we sort of judge people because, you know, I'm sure Jake's done a beer pong at, at some point. I'm sure. Never. I'm sure that, you know, you've, we've all done crazy, wild shit, right? We've all human beings. We've all partied. We've all done things we regret. Um, but it's funny that we hide all that stuff because we don't want people to know that we're human. 
that we've done all these things. We've done stupid things. We've made mistakes. We've had too much to drink, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we sort of create this facade around, well, you know, I've, I've got, you know, I live in a house with two and a half kids and a white picket fence and, you know, and I go on picnics every weekend and, you know, all, you know what I mean? Like, it's funny how we all know that we've done dumb shit when we're young, but it's sort of like, we want to hide that, but everyone's guilty of it. Unless you're like the 0.1% of the population. Really? Well, let me ask you, David, because you, you read CVs all the time when yeah. you, you hire new people. How many of the CVs that you read matched the person that you ended up employing? Like how many of them were oh. basically nonsense? Well, the, the, a lot of the CVs I get, they're not even relevant to the job that they've applied for. So they've just done like a shotgun approach where they've just applied for multiple roles at the same time. Right. Sometimes you get, you know, resumes that don't even match the job description. You're like looking for, you know, looking for nurse injector you know, and then someone that's a therapist, nothing wrong with being a therapist applies to the role. It's like, well, you don't have a nursing degree. I don't know how we can help you here. Do you know what I mean? So you get a lot of people that just sort of send out resumes everywhere that are not really relevant. So that that's one challenge. But as you said, just like people that, um, you know, spelling mistakes, grammatical errors, they put no effort into it, no cover letter. Um, you get a lot of that. You get a lot of people just doing the very most basic of things to say they're looking for a job or I'm not sure, maybe their parents are pushing them to get a job or maybe they're trying to satisfy some government requirement to show that they're looking, but there's definitely an element of laxity. It's rare that I come across a real great CV that you can tell that they've actually looked at the role that you've that you've advertised. Um, they know about your company, um, they can articulate why they want the role and then they can put that in a succinct, you know, nicely presented um, document that's not a thousand pages long. Um, that gives you a snapshot of who this person is and how they potentially will fit into your company. So it's unusual that you get that these days. What do you think, Lizzie? That's just my experience. That is, I, I agree. It is unusual. And it's also a, a way of um, really putting in a, um, a process for selection right at the very beginning. So in a, in a job ad, I'll, I'll write, um, please make us feel, feel special and write us yeah. um, a, a dedicated um, covering letter you know, addressing, and it might be, you know, two, two little things, you know, tell us where you live and why you want this job or, you know, whatever. Um, and please address your um, covering letter to Lizzie. Yeah. And you, you still get to, you know, dear sir, madam, or to yeah. who it may concern. Yeah. So, you know, they're just little things like that. And I think they're the things that, you know, you should be looking at, you know, at, as you go along. You learn more about the person that you end up hiring throughout the recruitment process than you do in the interview or even with the the reference checking. You yeah. know, it's like picking up those little nuances through that process. And um and and I think, yeah, while and while I'm at it, yeah. And not judging. I hope I didn't come across as a no, not at all. Yeah, because no, 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 no. I probably would have been one of those girls with the glass of wine in my <laughs> hand as well. <laughs> isn't the reference so silly? They're gonna choose their best mate or their best employer ever they're going to tell you the the sun shines out of their ass and i mean what's its use these days no what, sorry i, I missed the word referees did you say yeah they're reference oh. they're referee yeah no it's fabulous okay reference checking is such an important aspect of the of the recruitment process and i think that people um actually think that you're not going to contact their refer their referee that because a lot of people don't. When when, when I talk to um, my clients who bring me on board and they say, oh, you know, I've really had some terrible 
terrible drama. You know, it's just all ended in tears. And I said, well, you know, do, do you reference check? And they're, oh, no, we didn't reference check because, you know, we just need, well, they interviewed well and I thought they were great, you know. So mm. I think that's really important um, to never forget that because at the end of the day, you think you've found the right person and then doing the reference checks is as important as the initial reading of their CV. Yeah. Now, getting back to the actual question, I am gobsmacked sometimes that you know, people will put down their their um, past employers thinking that they're going to give them a great reference and they actually don't. Right. And it is amazing. And, you know, they haven't qualified them. Um, like, I, I did a reference check on, on Saturday actually with um with a fellow and and he was quite scathing of this young lady and um she had said to me oh be very careful um about what you tell him because he really wants me to come back he really wants me badly <laughs> you know he um and please don't let him know I'm looking for a job in this area because he'll be disappointed um that I'm not coming back to him mm. and uh, you know he basically said you know. Don't hide this young lady. You'll you you'll regret it. Uh, so, <laughs> um, and and again, I, I suppose really leaning on people in a way that is genuine and real, like saying to the referee, "Look, I really need your help to get this position right. You know, this this is the role. Uh, this is what I'm looking for. This is what my business looks like." Do you think from your experience with this person, do you think that they're going to, you know, fit in this role? And that's where referees sometimes will be really honest and say, no, you know, if if that's what you're looking for, then I can't see this working. Mm. So it's also about asking the right questions of your referee. And um, I find, you know, my method is to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Because that, that that actually appeals to our innate sense to want to help others. So I say, look, oh, I really need to get this placement right. Can you help me with this? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Well, I, I guess there would also be an element sometimes if things have ended quite badly, or the person that you've left is upset that you've they've left. You might have put a lot of time into training that person, and they were good, but there might be an element of vindictiveness there from a referee. So how do you, how do you sort of sort out you know the truth? from the bullshit yeah that that is a hard one well finding out if the stories match as well like sometimes mm. generally um well legally you can really you should only contact um employers that people have put down that they've actually qualified they've allowed you to mm-hmm. call that person as a referee so if they've told the story and said look you know i don't think they'll give me a good reference because this is what happened and then they tell you the story and you're right. I mean, that is a really big part of what ticks people off. They've really invested in the person. They've yeah. spent time and energy and effort in training. Perhaps they've sent them to a conference and then they've resigned the weekend after they've gone to the conference, <laughs> things yeah. like that. Happen. Mm-hmm. Um, then they, they, they will, um, you know, oftentimes give you a bad rap. They'll, they'll be sort of tarnished. Mm. Uh, but then you, you match up and you say, well, did the candidate actually tell me that, you know, that was the same story and, you know, yeah. you, you take that on board um, and you do more than one reference check. If, if that's the, the um, circumstance, you, you go back a bit further and say, well, what was your experience when you worked with this person? And, you know, we're always trying to find out really, is, the, is this person going to 
really be the right person for your role. Yeah. Um, and, you know, where are they at the moment? What are they looking for? So, um, yeah, you, you have to let that go. It's a little bit like um, sometimes, you know, when people interview badly. Yeah, I'm like, going to get to that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I was, I was just going to say, I mean, I've done, I don't know, not thousands, but definitely in the many hundreds of interviews over the years. And I just can't tell anymore. To be honest with you, some of the people who I thought were going to be the absolute best employers I've ever recruited turned out to be rubbish. And some of the people that were, you know, shitting bricks, they're sweating, they're stumbling over their words, they're, you know, they they sort of go blank. Um, you know, some of those people who I've been, you know, just out of desperation have given the role to have ended up being some of the greatest employees that I've ever given jobs to. So it's hard to know. I mean, you see these, you know, these um uh, scripts on the questions that you said ask, you know, tell us a situation where you've encountered a challenge and you've overcome it. Tell us all, you see all these sort of questions that you just sort of just go this, you know, we're just ticking boxes here. And I've, I've resorted to, I just want to, don't want to ask you any questions. I want to find out about you. Let's go grab a coffee. I want to find out who you are. What do you like? You know, what's your family life like? You know, what do you like to do with your spare time? You know, trying to really try and get like a sense of who that person is rather than, you know, what job they've done in the past, you know, obviously you need to make sure that, you know, if you're employing, employing someone to be a doctor, you want to make sure they're registered, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about that sort of level. Did you ever check mine? <laughs> um, so th- that's what I've sort of resorted to is because like, I just can't tell anymore. I've just sort of, well, let me just have a coffee with this person and see whether I can use other tools like body language and tone and, and, and sort of really try and get to the, get them to like, get rid of this performance that they're putting on and try and find out who they are as a, as a friend or just having a coffee with someone that you've just met. Yeah. That's how I approach interviews now because I've just found it so bloody difficult because no matter what script I follow, it you know, at the end of the day, you're like, mm, I don't know, maybe they're really good. Maybe they're just really good actors or maybe they're just really nervous. So what do you think? <laughs> that is, and look, I agree with everything you've said, and I think if if uh, our listeners could could take one little uh, you know a nugget from that, it's um, yeah, don't judge the person from the from the interview. Um, I, so many of my clients will say, "Oh, Lizzie, I'm so glad that you you really pushed me to you know reconsider that person because I interviewed so badly, yet they've turned out to be the best employee I've ever had." Uh, and so there's, you know, oftentimes a correlation there. And then sometimes someone who interviews very well and, you know, who can talk the talk, um, you know, they fall down. I think getting to know the real person, um, making them feel very relaxed, um, giving, setting the scene so that they can actually tell you what they really want. I, I find that that's half the, the um, issue is saying, Tell me what you really want to do. And that one of the one of the questions I ask candidates is, if you could write your own job ad on Seek, apply for it and get it, what is that job? And they will often describe something very different to what you have on offer. So you know, you, you get an idea. And I say, look, let me help you move towards getting that job because this isn't it. And they'll actually say to me, Wow, no one in an interview has ever asked me that. They've never asked me, what do you truly want? What is it? What's what's your ultimate job? And I think that's that's a really important question to ask, and then see and being okay with the fact if they say that your job isn't what they want. <laughs> it is a good question, and you know I train injectors, and one of the questions I now ask them is, well, 
what sort of injector do you want to be? And they kind of look at me very blankly. I'm like, well, you know, do you, are you happy? And there's nothing wrong or right about it, but are you happy just doing standard treatments day in, day out, seeing 100 people a day? Or do you want to make yourself more niche and, and higher end and learn very technical stuff? And, you know, where do you want to be in five years? Do you still want to be here because your family's here, which is fine? Or are you looking to do something totally different? And if you are, then how are we going to get you there? What, what do we need to put in place over the next five years? I think a lot of injectors, particularly the, the younger ones who are coming in, again, I'm not knocking them, but they don't have a vision or a plan. They just want to inject. And quickly they realize that they're bored after a year or two because they're like, well, am I going to do this for another 20 years? No, of course not. You have to progress and evolve. So it's a really important point from an employer's perspective to try and understand the injector or the employee yeah very true and you will get that a lot of the times you you will get that at the interview stage by saying what do you truly want to do you know what what is your goal where do you want to be Um, and it may not be where you are at the moment it may be something totally different but it gives you an idea and then saying all right well can I deliver that to them if if they want to be a um, yeah um an injector of a, a, a different sort of format to to what your um, your business model or your brand is all about. You know, mm. is that going to end up in you know in tears for you or for them down down the track? So it's it's a little bit like being, I suppose, really Maria from the Von Traps. You know, you've got all the different children, and you know they you know you've got to sort of cater for each of their different needs, yeah. uh, and that's that's the dilemma of the business person. For anyone wondering what that reference was, uh, a movie called The Sound of Music, which is, uh, we're showing our age, Lizzie. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Von <laughs> Trap is the name of the family. Yes. Uh, um, David, you've employed loads of injectors. What have you found has either demotivated or motivated them? What, what are they wanting? Um, I think that what demotivates them, um, especially for people coming into the industry in, in sort of more recent times, is their. L- understanding that building up to being a successful injector, having constantly full books, you know, earning a certain amount of income takes time. Mm. And I think that people want that instant success and that instant gratification. And when it doesn't come straight away, they become very disheartened. Client clients coming to me, you know, um, it's, there seems to be that, that, that mindset for many people that as soon as you open your door and put your sign on the, on, up on the wall that people are just going to walk in and then it's just going to happen through, you know, on its own. And I think that's one of the biggest realizations is that it's quite a competitive space now. Um, you know, it's not like it was 10 years ago where, you know, the supply was, was nowhere near meeting the potential demand and there wasn't as many people in this industry. So I think now because it's so competitive, especially with younger people, really savvy on social media, really good at promoting themselves, that if you want to stand out from the crowd and, and really build a solid, successful um, uh, career, you really need to put in, you know, two years at least of solid hard work before you can probably start to see that return. And I think that's the biggest thing is the lack of um, sustained motivation and understanding that opening up um, your business to become an injector is like starting any other business. And most businesses don't make money for the first two years. There's a lot of sweat and time and effort that goes in before you see that return. So I think it's just about the patience. Um, and being willing to do all the other things other than just being a good injector that will make your business successful. Would you agree, Lizzie? Absolutely. I think um, yeah, the other two things, patience and 
patience. You know, <laughs> really, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that will build up um, as you go along. But, yeah, we, we do live in, in a world of instant gratification. You know, you, you get that, you know, Big Mac in, in 60 seconds and, you know, if there's more than two clicks to get into a website, you, you've lost them. You know, people are really tuned in to um, things happening fast. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's that's really key to it, just recognising that things take time. One of the challenges that I've faced over the years and, and many people who are in um, positions like owning clinics like myself is understanding how to communicate with your staff. Like where do you position yourself in terms of employer slash authority figure versus someone that you can have a laugh with in the team room and have a joke and share some personal stories and build some real rapport and actually have that you know, almost friendship, respect kind of thing outside of being someone's boss. And it's sort of a, it's a really difficult one. And I find that's the most challenging thing for most new business owners or most people in management positions is finding your management style, finding your voice, finding out how you communicate with your staff where, you know, you can have a joke, you genuinely care about each other, but they, everyone knows there's a line that you don't cross. Um, and we used find, to call you David that. Brent behind your back, David. Sorry, what was that? We used to call you David Brent. <laughs> for those people who don't know David Brent is watching the office, office. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm happy to be Ricky Gervais no problem <laughs> yeah. sorry I stole your thunder there yeah, yeah okay. good question actually it is a good yeah. question that is a good one I, and I think um, probably the answer to that is consistency yeah. it's like find out who you are and and then be that person so that, that's what makes people feel very relaxed and um, confident in in their workplace relationships is consistency. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really, what you were saying too with with new business owners, I think finding your your ground and and working out what sort of management management style that you have, you know, that's innate to you. You know, how do you get people to follow you, or you know? If you are setting yourself up as a leader, how do you position yourself there? And then be work work out what that is, and then be consistent with it. So, um, you know, if you are that, well, hopefully you are that sort of person who can have a um, a joke and and um, make sort of you know the workplace a little bit lighthearted because that's one of the things that will not only drive people to a workplace but keep them there because yeah. you know they, they want to feel that it's a happy environment and, and a happy place so being able to have a joke is is it's not and it's not everyone's ability to have yeah. a joke at work yeah. and sometimes people don't get your humor like it might be you know too old like referencing old movies yeah. um, yeah. <laughs> um, the i think consistency and then also making sure you don't cross that line i mean there's amazing um changes that are you know coming into the workplace now about you know what what is um, what what is appropriate what's not appropriate um in terms of you know interacting with your team um looking at um you know how you should be reacting um to to different scenarios within a workplace um as a manager is going to be more difficult if, you know, you've, you've just been out for dinner with the whole team the night before and, you know, had a few too many drinks and, you know, it's like lead by example. Um, Recognise your human and, uh, yeah, and and be who you are and be consistent at that. And I think that works. Then, then your team know who you are. It's like you, you're always, you know, joking around or you're always a little bit aloof but don't be sort of mixing between the two. Mm-hmm. 
Before we uh, get to the end of the podcast, I wanted to ask about termination and those difficult conversations when things don't necessarily work out as well. So I know for injectors, it's reasonably standard practice to have a sort of a three-month probation, see how you go, and you know we'll sign a contract if, if things are all happy. But any sort of hints and tips for employers? Because it's it's always awkward. And I've, I've seen David <laughs> get rid of people within a day, a week, two weeks. Sometimes, like you said, they're the best employee ever. But yeah, what, what are your hints and tips for that awkward scenario? Okay, when things get to the pointy end, yeah, I think it's um, key to managing any um, performance issue or a termination is to be, again, using the word consistent, so to being consistent, to being fair, and to actually to, to act um, quickly, you know, to not let things go. Um, I always like to hope and, and move towards a termination should never come as a surprise. You know, mm. So someone should never be asked to come in and then they go, wow, I didn't see that coming. Generally, people will have an idea that they're, they're not fitting in with the workplace for you know, a variety of reasons or they're not meeting um, the standard of um, performance or whatever it is that's not making the relationship work. And I often revert back to the whole relationship style when when there's a termination. You know, it's like it's over. It's, you know, it's called a breakup because it's broken. Uh, we, we need to move on. This is not working for you. It's not working for me. And if I had a, a tip or a trick, it would be make a, make a decision quickly. And I think that's a, that's a great um, method that you have, David. You, once you've decided that this person is not right, um, be fair and, and address whatever it is. Is it something that can change? Is it something that will change? And if you meet with the individual and you find out that this is never going to be a, a match for us, um, then manage that breakup. Um, you know, and manage it like you would any other um, termination of a relationship in your life. You know, you um, you want the the ending of that relationship to be as positive as possible. And one of the things that I really try to work hard on with my clients is to see if we can create a an exit strategy that results in a positive experience for both the business and the individual so that you treat them really like you would a patient who decides not to come back to your practice anymore. You don't want them going out and telling all their friends what a terrible experience they had and how horrible it is because that sort of thing, again, in this day and age with social media, that can actually be damaging as an employer as much as it would be um, a patient going out there and giving you a bad um, Google review or um, posting something on social media about you. So thinking about your employee as um, a person who is going to be discussing your business um, with other people and keeping that in mind I think is really crucial and something that sometimes employers might forget towards the end of employment. Mm. They might be happy to see the back of someone or relieved that this person's gone. But sometimes it just it doesn't take much to, to really take that higher road and ensure that the person leaving 
and it does feel value that you know you can find something good about what they did um have a have a farewell um protocol that you follow and regardless of the reason that the person leaves your business you still follow that protocol mm-hmm. um, whether it's you know, yeah putting information um in in your newsletter you know saying look you know we were really sorry to see you know betty leave us last month but she's gone on to other things to find you know find a role that she's going to be happier in because you know the staff talk to each other and they'll they'll say oh yeah that was that was said you know do you give them flowers and a card whatever you do for someone if they were leaving under the best of circumstances really try and still do that if they're leaving under not so good circumstances and remember that they are a PR exercise for your business as well sometimes that's forgotten. a really good point yeah I never really thought about that you got any good stories for us David about uh, <laughs> uh, 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 I think that the most bizarre termination I ever had was um, down in Canberra many many years ago where a staff member went missing oh, half, this is brilliant half, I halfway through her shift and no one could find her she wasn't answering the phone you know, it would be in a couple of hours. We were probably getting close to calling the police or her next of kin to find out what was going on. Anyway, um, some, somehow um, this, this staff member had hidden herself in a cupboard in a, in a treatment room. And when another staff member went in to grab a supply, this therapist was like sitting in there on her phone and had just decided that she'd one had enough for the day. Um, and that was probably one of the most bizarre things that I've ever had to deal with. It was just so weird. Um, but I don't know, I guess when you've, when you've had enough, you've had enough, right? You just <laughs> couldn't carry on. So yeah, that, that's one of the weirder ones that I've had, but uh, yeah, I'm sure I can think of more. <laughs> I'm sure you could write a great book. Yeah. There you go. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sorry for the um, little hiccup with the camera this morning, but I'm glad we got there in the end. And thank you for taking the time, both Jake and I really appreciate it. And I hope that um, our listeners got something out of this, whether you're an employee or an employer or just starting your business or thinking about starting your business, or maybe you've just been fired. Um, you know, hopefully there's something, something in this for everybody. Yeah, well, absolutely. I really, uh, it was a great insight into what you do, Lizzie. And we'll put your details at the bottom of the podcast description. So if anyone local or I guess you're Australia-wide, is that correct? Yes, I am. Yeah, anyone looking in our industry, we'll, we'll funnel them your way and hopefully get you some new clients. Fantastic. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dave and Jake. Have a great day. Thank great. you. Lizzie. Thank you. See you, Lizzie. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.